0: Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Here's to greater possibilities together. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull in somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Jim Kramer, welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but also to teach and educate you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You'd have to search far and wide to find someone who's been as bullish as I have over the past couple of years. But sometimes we need to step back. Sometimes we need to do a little reassessment. After a day where the Dow lost 56 points, the S&P declined 0.14%, and the Nasdaq actually inched up 0.03%, I got to tell you, I'm starting to get a tad concerned about the health of more and more industries here. The universe of potential winners does feel like, at least to me, that it's getting smaller. Now, do not get me wrong. I'm saying this right up front. I am not saying you should sell everything. The only time I ever did that was in early October of 2008. Sell, 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 sell. When I told you to sell everything that you needed in the next five years because the financial crisis was going to get worse before it got better. And what's happening now is nothing like what happened back then. If you've been saving up for your retirement by putting money in an S&P 500 index fund, something that everybody should do, you don't need to touch that position. Keep putting money in over time. That's not something you try to trade. It's an extremely long-term investment. But when it comes to a number of individual stocks, things have suddenly gotten a lot more risky. What's the problem? We've been talking about the Fed and interest rates a lot lately on Mad Money, and with good reason. For many years, you didn't really need to worry that much about the Federal Reserve, particularly under Janet Yellen. Back then, when it came to, admittedly, much-needed rate hikes, because rates were too low versus the health of the economy, you knew they wouldn't be raised nilly, willy-nilly. It wouldn't just go up, you know, with, with your eyes closed. They were going to be what's known as data-dependent, I meaning if the economy slowed down too much after a hike, they'd put the rate hikes on hold. That's called reasonable. Reasonable. And that policy was great also for the stock market. That's not why I liked it, but it was great. And, of course, interest rates were appreciably lower back then, so stocks had much less competition for the bond market. But last week, the new Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, threw away the data-dependent playbook. And started explaining how it was important for the Fed to just keep raising rates, regardless because the economy is so strong, and even uh, to overshoot in order to cool down the economy. Now, that's not the kind of talk that endears you to Wall Street, nor, by the way, does it endear Jerome Powell to the president, who said this very afternoon he didn't like how quickly the Fed was raising rates. He said the rates, the rate hikes are coming too fast. Something I've been saying for a week now. I know keeping inflation contained is part of Powell's job. But when he talks about overshooting, that's like saying he wants to slam the brakes on the economy rather than gently tapping the brakes. Because it doesn't matter how strong the economy is. It it can handle anything. It doesn't matter. That's wrong. I don't like this view. I don't like this view any more than the president likes it. When I hear that the Fed is going to keep tightening until the cows come home, it makes me think that the cows are actually headed to the slaughterhouse. So I grow concerned. Powell's game plan sounds curiously like what Ben Bernanke did during the lead-up to the Great Recession. Oh, another time when the economy was so strong we didn't need to worry about it. Uh, It's just tightening on autopilot with no real regard for the reality of the situation. But it's not just the financial crisis. When you get to be my age, you've seen the story over and over again. Lockstep rate hikes from the Fed causes an economic slowdown. It almost never has a happy ending, something the business side of President Trump knows all too well. Now, all day today, I got the vibe that I'm supposed to be dead wrong on this, that the economy is just so strong that I'm totally off the reservation. But let me say this about the reservation. I don't take my cue from the Fed or its data. I don't actually have that much regard for top-down macro data about the whole economy, and even including the Fed's data. I'm what's known as a bottoms-up guy, meaning I prefer to listen to individual companies sopping up what they tell me like the world's biggest sponge. I suspect I speak to more CEOs than just about anyone else in the media world, if not the actual world. I take what they tell me and I piece it together into a mosaic about the whole country. That's my job. And here's what I know and what I hear. These CEOs have gotten worried. They weren't earlier. Now they are. They see many things slowing, some rather dramatically. We heard from Lenar, the biggest home builder, that there's a pause in housing. Some of the other home builders are saying the same thing to me. I always point out that housing punches well above its weight. In terms of its impact on the economy, I don't like what I'm hearing about loan growth, and I bet we'll be even more concerned about it when the banks start reporting on Friday. That could impact the whole construction industry, which is a lot of jobs. I don't like how the airline stocks are trading because they're being squeezed by higher fuel costs. It looks like they can't pass them all on. There's a sense that the data center may actually be slowing. Now, it's something I disagree with, but I can't ignore the chatter. One of my absolute favorite bellwethers— The stock of FedEx is behaving very poorly, down another 2%. I'm appalled at how terribly the liner board stocks trade, and that's because there is too much supply and not enough demand. Think about it. If you have something to ship, you put it in a corrugated box. It's not a good sign when these stocks take out their 52-week lows in violent fashion. Many chemical stocks are getting annihilated here. Chemicals and liner board are highly accurate forecasters of the future. And then last night, we got the real punch to the kisser. PPG pre-announced that it's going to miss the quarter big time because this company that makes so many paints and coatings for luxury cars sees softening demand pretty much everywhere. Now, I was assuaged a bit when CNBC's own Phil LeBeau reminded me that as long as consumer confidence remains high, we should be able to put up another really good year of car numbers or vehicles, let's say. However, the stocks of the industrials fell apart today off that PPG pre-announcement. In situations like this, portfolio managers, here's what they do. And then they ask questions later. Ford and GM, by the way, hit new 52-week lows, not reassuring. Many auto-related manufacturers saw their stocks get pummeled from dawn till dusk, which brings me full circle back to the Fed. If all of these industries are having issues. If PPG, which we learned tonight is a big position of the hedge fund Tryon Nelson Partners investment vehicle, if PPG is to be believed, and there is absolutely no reason not to, then what the heck is the Fed doing with this autopilot nonsense? How can these central bankers talk about the incredible strength of the economy without, you know, actually getting their hands dirty and talking to CEOs across a host of different industries? I can tell you these executives are plenty worried that the Fed has stopped doing its own checks. Again, this is not a they know nothing! moment like 11 years ago where the Fed was dead wrong they know nothing! about the economy. And I had to shout it from the rooftops. When Bernanke got it wrong, it nearly destroyed the financial system. Powell's making the same kind of mistake, but the consequences are far less grave, thank heavens. We probably won't even get an actual recession. But the universe of companies that are doing well is growing smaller. And this is mad money. I'm not here to be an economist. I'm here to try to help you make some money and preserve your prop, your capital. I wouldn't be so concerned if not for the trade war against China. I think the president's absolutely justified to go after the Chinese for years and years of trading abuse. But Context matters. It's one thing to have a trade war when the world economy is on fire. It's something very different if the world economy is slowing. Something the IMF told us last night when it cut the global growth forecast from 3.9% to 3.7% for this year and next. I thought that was a wake-up call. That, That what's strong now, employment, may not be quite so strong six months from now. Oh, I'm a little worried. Again, I'm not turning against the whole stock market. There's still plenty of areas that we can make a lot of money. And Starbucks rallied today off the news that Bill Ackman took a major stake in the company. More on that later. McDonald's stock's doing well. As for many of the drug company stocks. But that actually just plays to my fears. Those are the stocks that do well when the Fed overshoots and the economy slows down. Something that Chairman Powell says is a real possibility. The overshooting, that is. The bottom line, call me a little cautious. I think we can go higher. But the stocks taking us higher are the wrong stocks if you believe the economy's in good shape. They're the right stocks if you believe, well, that I'm right and we could have a Fed-mandated slowdown. I sure hope I'm wrong. But on a day like this where we get some dire news from PPG, I'm feeling right as rain. Brian in Texas, Brian. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Brian. My question is about GG Gold Corp. There were some protesters that blocked the mine and that could have uh, hurt production. Around the same time in July, the stock dropped by almost 30 percent. With the market the way it is and Goldcorp's commitment to environmentally friendly practices, uh, could this be where the stock turns around? You know what? I'm so fed up with the gold stocks. I like gold. I like GLD. I'm a believer in gold. I think it's a good diversification. But the stocks have systematically let me down. And I feel awful about recommending any of these. All right. Now, the stocks leading us higher aren't, aren't, this the stocks that should be going higher if the economy is really as strong as the fed and its acolytes are telling us so right now i want to be a little more cautious it's okay man money tonight my power rankings have just gotten started how does amazon stack up against other consumer plays hey there's one i like i'm going to be revealing then is it time to rate proof your investment portfolio i'm telling you the ways to play any outcome in the rate debate during tonight's off the charts and it's considered a proxy for the economy, and its shares just dropped the most in nine years, although it recovered after hours. What does the move in PPG mean for the overall market? I'm giving my tip. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag mad tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. It's finally here. Untold Stories, Top Moments from Worlds brings you closer than ever to the best players, top moments, and biggest events from all the past League of Legends World Championships. The Rise of Faker, the Origin of Silver Scrapes, the Greatest Match Ever, and Freak's Basement. We've got all these stories and so much more. Untold Stories, top moments from worlds. Listen for free exclusively on Spotify. All week, we're rolling out power rankings for each sector of the stock market, just like how gamblers use power rankings to gauge the strength of football teams. While a team's actual win-loss record tells you how it's done all season, the power rankings are designed to give you a sense of how it stacks up against the competition right now, at this very moment. In stock market terms, your stock performance is like your record. It's great if you own something that's up big during the first nine months of the year, but past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future success. So in the Kramer power rankings, we judge the members of each group by where we think they're going, not where they've been. Last time we started with the communication services cohort, that weird agglomeration of phone carriers, cable companies, media players. Tonight we're going to rank a couple more groups, starting with the consumer discretionary sector. Hey, by the way, that's just Wall Street speak for the restaurants and retailers and many of the suppliers like the apparel companies. Now, the consumer discretionary group has had a real good year in 2018. When employment is booming, when the government's cutting taxes, at least on corporations and on people who live in red states, you better believe the retailers and the restaurants are going to outperform. In the last few days, though, the group has lost some of its mojo. These names got hard hit in the sell-off. So as we head into the end of the year, which of the discretionary names can still hold up or at least the best place to be in a diversified portfolio that includes some discretionaries? Well, why don't we start by looking up the top performers? Because it's good to know what's been working, even if they want to all necessarily keep working. Bizarrely enough, the top performer here isn't Amazon. It's advanced auto parts, up 69%. Amazon comes in second, up 60%. A resurgent Chipotle, we had them on last week, not too distant third. Then there's TJX, O'Reilly Automotive, Under Armour, Target, Macy's, Kohl's, Nordstrom, Nike, VF Corp, Ralph Lauren. You get the idea. Some restaurants, some auto chains, and a lot of department stores, off-price plays, you know, the usual. So where do these winners stand in the Kramer Power Rankings for the consumer discretionary space? Well, we're not just going to crib from what's working right now. We've got to think bigger, longer term. While Amazon may be the second-best performer year-to-date, it's number one in our Power Rankings. How could the retail death start be anything else? Funnily enough, you're actually getting a rare buying opportunity here. Amazon dominates every retail market they get into. Their their prime subscription service is essential. Their web services division unparalleled. And they're making more and more money from selling online advertising. Did you know that Amazon's already the number three player in internet advertising? Just like web services did a few years ago, the ad business really kind of snuck up on investors. You can place an ad just where and when the customer is looking to make a purchase. That's hard to beat. Yet the stock has pulled back $180 from its recent highs. And historically, when Amazon sells off, it has turned out to be a buying opportunity every single time. Now, maybe this time will be different, but I doubt it. Not only does Amazon continue to have terrific sales growth, the company's finally started to deliver some fabulous earnings per share, too. For the last four quarters in a row, they've earned much, much, much more than anyone expected. Hey, last time it was 5 bucks and change, Most you was looking for $2.54. The bookcase here was always that Amazon could turn on the, potential, uh, turn on the profitability spigot uh, whenever they wanted to. It just made more sense for the company to continue to spend the money it needs for growth opportunities. Well, that strategy worked. I think the recent correction, I'm calling it a gift. Second in the consumer discretionary power rankings, TJX, the parent of TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Kramer fave home goods, although I like I like them all. I was just in TJ Maxx the other day. I just recommended this stock last week. And I like the stock even more now that it's pulled back a bit from its recent highs. For those of you who don't remember, TJX belongs to the one retail category that seems to be somewhat immunized against Amazon. It's the off price chains. That's why I've liked this for so long. When department stores are desperate to get rid of their seasonal inventory that didn't sell so they can bring in new product, they sell it to companies like TJX for a pittance. Then TJX marks it up, sells it to you at a price that's still much lower than where you'd find it anywhere else. The whole model ends up creating a bit of a treasure hunt experience. It's like that kind of that episode of The Simpsons where Marge finds a massively marked-down Chanel suit at a discount store. There's some doubters here. But I think the numbers speak for themselves. In the latest quarter, TJX delivered a 6% increase in same-store sales. You know, that's the key metric. And that was much better than the 2.1% number that the analysts were looking for. They're practically coining money here. And I bet America's premier off-price chain is going to have a very good holiday season. How about number three? Okay, Kohl's, KSS. The second-best performing department store stock. It's uh, 2018. It's up 31% for the year. Why Kohl's over Macy's or Nordstrom? Well, we've been buying this one for the Travel Trust. You can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club, and I'll tell you why. You want some traditional department store exposure going into the holidays this year. Between the strong job market and the job cuts, I think retail's about to have a Merry Christmas. But again, why Coles? because the value-based chain has been making major self-improvement efforts. For example, they've gotten better at inventory management, bolstering their gross margins. And Kohl's also has a bunch of new initiatives like smaller format stores and an actual partnership with Amazon. With the Death Star, they've got a pilot program where you can buy from the online behemoth and then return your stuff via Kohl's, which strikes me as a brilliant way to generate traffic, especially given that you need to walk all the way through what's known as the racetrack of the store to reach the place where you can return your unboxed Amazon wares. The analysts are forecasting flat same-store sales in the fourth quarter, thanks to strong comparisons from last year, and the stock has now pulled back 11 bucks from its highs. Remember, we're all worried about a slowdown in the economy. I still think you should call me a buyer. Next up, fourth, the consumer discretionary power ranking is VF Corp. Yes, the parent of North Face, Jansport, and the Red Hot Vans, among a host of other brands. As I've said before, I think Vans alone is a huge opportunity for VFC. They've taken a skateboarding shoe and turned it into a lifestyle brand. At the same time, the company's about to spin off its not-so-hot jeans business early next year, and last week they announced the sale of their reef sandal business. You know what? Here's what I'm thinking. Basically, VF Corp is pairing back its non-essential divisions and focusing on their very best brands, creating a lean, mean earnings machine. The transformation will really start to kick in early next year, which is why I think VF Corp makes so much sense here at the beginning of the fourth quarter. And I know it's run a lot, but you know what? It's changing its stripes in a positive direction. Number five, finally, is Nike. Until last week's big market-wide sell-off, Nike had been on fire. The reason? They figured out how to fend off the resurgent competition from Under Armour and Adidas by rolling out fabulous new products and selling them, personalizing them even, directly to the consumer, DTC. Business is booming. I liked Nike's last quarter, but the stock has pulled back 5% since then, of course, because of the overall market turmoil, and I think the dip is worth buying. Oh, and one more thing. It doesn't show up in the power rankings at all, but today we found out that Bill Ackman, the hedge fund manager, has taken a big position in Starbucks. I think it would be a mistake to chase it up here after the announcement, but Starbucks is a well-run company with a huge buyback, and I think we'll have a good fourth quarter, but that means you have to look through what I think could be a very uneven third quarter. The bottom line. If you want exposure to the consumer discretionary space going into the end of the year, and this is if you're very bullish in the economy. I'm starting to temper my view, as you know. My favorites are Amazon, which works well or in the slowdown. TJX, also good in slow slowdown. Kohl's, a discounter, good. VF, that's a special situation. And then Nike in that order. Let's go to Brandon in Pennsylvania. Brandon. Booyah from Philadelphia, Jim. Uh, oh, good to see you, man. And we're going to be down there again. We just keep going to Philadelphia, and I love that. How can I help? So, Jim, uh, I wanted to diversify my portfolio, and I noticed that I lack any real substantial holding in um, consumer discretionary. Okay. So as, a, as a 22-year-old college student, many of my friends are starting to go to casinos now, and I figured instead of blowing my money at a casino on rou- roulette or craps that I could invest in casinos instead. So I wanted your opinion on Red Rock Resort ticker RR and whether you thought it was a buy given it has experienced about an 8% pullback in the last few days. And it's seemingly insulated from the trade war issues that (laughs) are going on right now. Brandon, I can't talk you out of that one. And stock's down a lot. I do and have been recommending Pinnacle Entertainment. Remember, I share with you the antipathy toward owning a casino stock that has a major position in Macau. Yours doesn't, but I think Red Rock is not as good as Pinnacle Entertainment, symbol PNK. All right, knowledge, people, is power. If you're looking for the best of breed in the consumer discretionary group, which is under a lot of pressure, I want you to look no further than these picks for the long term. All right, much more mad money ahead. Out of the 32 consumer staple names on the S&P, roughly two-thirds are negative territory year-to-date. But are they still winners in the space? Is there something worth owning? My power rankings continue. Plus, everyone's worried about what's next for interest rates. So how should you protect your portfolio? Because rates are what's on the line right now, and that's why we're going off the charts. And PPG just painted an ugly picture when it comes to the third quarter. I'm breaking down the company's tough forecast, and I'm not happy. Stick with Kramer. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. As we go through each sector, laying out the Kramer power rankings to show you which stocks I like most as we head into the end of the year. Some groups will inevitably look a lot better than others. We just highlighted the consumer discretionary space at retail, and that cohort had been on fire until the economy seemed to, let's say, run into a wall, I think, because rates are going high too fast. But the next sector, the consumer staple space, has been very different. When we talk about the staples, we're referring to all sorts of packaged goods and stuff that's a necessity. Think everything from toothpaste to toilet paper to food and beverages. These groups have been out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show, which is why two-thirds of the consumer staple stocks in the S&P 500 are actually down for the year. Oh, they've been hit with headwind after headwind, rising transportation costs, rising commodity costs, stronger dollar, and now higher interest rates, which makes their bountiful dividends look a lot less enticing compared to bonds, a theme that I will hit. over your head again and again so you know what's really going on underneath the market. As I keep telling you, the staples tend to get crushed when rates are rising. I'll give you more on that later. But, and this is a mighty big but, if the Fed tightens too aggressively and ends up tipping the economy into a slowdown, what I'm really concerned about, well, you'll feel very foolish if you don't own any of these stocks. The staples are one, are one of the few groups that tends to outperform when the economy gets weaker, because these companies do not need a healthy economy to make their numbers. You don't stop being just because the um, unemployment rate ticks higher, do you? Now, I'm not saying that, that that's definitely going to happen. However, it's a very real possibility, given the Fed's recent language about overshooting is trying to stop inflation. And this is why I'm always preaching the virtues of diversification. Even if you don't believe in the slowdown thesis, you should own at least one stock that can work if that thesis proves to be true. And that means you might want some exposure to a group that nobody likes, to the consumer staples. So what are the power rankings for this beaten down group? When you look at consumer staple names that have been actually going higher, it's a short list. And only seven of them have double-digit gains, with McCormick, the spice and condiment maker, leading the pack. Up 33% thanks to a very smart acquisition. Next, there's ADM, Archer Daniels Midland. That's a crop processing company that makes tons and tons of corn syrup. Then we've got Costco, which falls into the staples sector because staples are most of what they sell. Followed by the first soft goods name on the list, Church and Dwight, which is up just 18%. Rounding out the top five is Cisco, a food service play that makes more, much more exposed to the restaurant in its space, and a lot of its strength comes from the fact that Tryon has been working hard to make it do better. That's Nelson Peltz's fund. Anyway, going forward, which ones do we like the most? All right, my top-ranked consumer, staple stock, didn't even make the top ten in terms of the year-to-date performance. Remember, these are the power rankings. And I'm talking about STZ, Constellation Brands, the beer, wine, and liquor company best known as the U.S. distributor of Corona, and Modelo. By the way, Victoria is the one that's really hot lately. Now, uh, Constellation has been a volatile trader ever since the company decided to take a major position in canopy growth. That's the best the Canadian cannabis producers, the one I think is going to hold up the best after repeal. In th- that's uh, repeal of Prohibition in Canada. In fact, the stock is down slightly year-to-date. So how the heck does Constellation end up at the number one spot of my power rankings? Because these rankings are supposed to reflect where the stock's going, not where it's been. After Constellation doubled down on its investment in canopy, a lot of fund managers started fretting that this was a bad sign. Why would they put so much into marijuana if the beer business was in good shape? It didn't help when the company reported a couple less than stellar quarters. However, Constellation put those concerns to rest when it reported last week, and the stock exploded higher. Turns out Corona and Medela are doing great. Oh, and while the marijuana stocks have been frothy and, you know, a little bit too hot for this guy, the farm bill that's currently being debated in Congress could legalize cannabidiol. That's CBD of oil at the federal level. And Constellation would instantly be able to get into that business. I think the stock's ridiculously cheaper given that kicker. And there's a lot more room to run. Now, I'm going to be speaking to Constellation's president about the cannabis business head of teaching I'm organizing this weekend. And I'll report back Monday, right before Canada officially legalizes pot later in the week, which is why I've been so focused on these people, because it, it may be a once in a lifetime opportunity. But remember, most of the things that are in there are way too risky. We're sti- trying to stay with the high end. Second, there's Costco. All right. Costco is one of my favorite places to shop, but it's not like many of the other consumer staples names. This is a big box retailer with a terrific business model where you pay them a fee to join the club and get the best deals. Basically, it's a subscription service. And Remember, we're, we are in a subscription economy. And as I've said repeatedly, joining Costco is one of the few spending decisions that I regard as a total no-brainer. Lisa and I have been fighting about taking a big Costco trip this very weekend because the Eagles play Thursday, and that means I have Sunday to go to Costco. Now, the stock has powered 20% higher this year, thanks to a string of very strong sales numbers. However, lately, Costco has become a bit of a battleground again. With the stock pulling back substantially in recent weeks, a number of analysts have turned on it. Then Costco reported last week, and the stock got clobbered. It was hideous. Why? Mostly because the company told us that while they filed, when they file their annual report, they expect to report a material weakness in their internal controls related to information technology controls. Basically, Costco's having a tech problem that impacts its financial reporting. But when you actually drill down and look at the numbers, you'll find a nice uptick in membership renewal rates, members per store and sales per, uh, per member, all of which were up versus the previous quarter. I don't think the IT issue, which did not cause a restatement, which is what I most fear, will be a big deal. And now the stock's down nearly 9% from September highs. I'd be a buyer here. Be careful. Some people think it's a big head and shoulders pattern now. I point this stuff out because that's the chatter. Third, there's McCormick the best performer in the group. McCormick's the top dog in the spice industry, and last year they made this gigantic bet on condiments, buying Frank's Red Hot Sauce and French's Mustard from wreck ben keyser At the time, Wall Street was skeptical, but the deals turned out to be a huge win. The stock has given you some monster gains since CEO Lawrence Curzius paid us a visit last year to explain the acquisition, convincing us of its worth, and I bet it's got more room to run. Number four in my consumer staple power rankings, many people will be familiar with this from our constant interviews with this fantastic CEO, and that's Clorox. This is actually the only typical staples play on my list. Clorox is a classic consumer packaged goods company with a solid 2.6% yield. This is the kind of stock you buy when you're worried about the Fed-mandated economic slowdown that I am so concerned about that I've talked about for the last week. But why Clorox rather than, say, two others that are bigger, Procter & Gamble or this not as big, Kimberly-Clark? Well, because this is a tough environment for the soft goods names, and I trust Clorox's CEO, Ben Odoura, to execute better than his rivals. Call it survival the fittest. The company's gotten aggressive about cutting costs, and as a result, its stock has held up better than the other consumer packaged goods plays, although it's still barely up for the year. Clorox has also been trying to raise price, and I think that will give them some nascent growth for 2019. So if you want to protect your portfolio against a slowdown, I think you could consider owning some Clorox. What a great household name. Fifth, and finally, we've got one that I have tried to proselytize about because it's so well run, and that's Estee Lauder. Again, this is an outlier in the consumer staple sector. Frankly, you could argue the cosmetic kingpin doesn't belong in this group, but for a lot of us, makeup is a necessity these days. While the stock is up 10% for the year. It's been held back by worries about the closure of a major distributor, Bonton Stores, and the fact that the company gets 12% of its sales from perhaps slowing China. Even as Estee Lauder, led by the fantastic Fabrizio Freta, keeps delivering fantastic results. The stock just hasn't been getting the credit it deserves. And maybe that's the opportunity. It's been weak of late because the last quarter was not the usual blowout. The bottom line, you need some exposure to the staples for the sake of diversification, which you know we believe in on mad money. However, if you believe interest rates will keep going higher, you might want to stick with an atypical one like Constellation Brands. Costco, McCormick, and Estee Lauder rather than a standard bond market alternative like Clorox. They have money is back after the break. Last week, the Federal Reserve made it very clear that they're willing to overshoot when it comes to raising interest rates, basically telling the world that they're going to tame inflation whatever the costs. In response, we got that hideous sell-off that lasted until yesterday's intraday bounce, but then resumed with the industrials today. So where do we go from here? Look, there's no doubt that long-term interest rates, the ones the Fed doesn't really control, are in the driver's seat here. The question is, where are those rates actually headed? Like I told you last night, this market has three camps, three groups of money managers with very different worldviews. And they come out every day and they put money behind the worldviews. Now you've got the recessionistas, who believe the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, is doing the right thing and think his lockstep tightening will cause an economic slowdown, though, which will ultimately push rates back down. Then you've got the inflationistas, who believe that rates are too low because inflation is really raging here. And in their view, the Fed hasn't done enough. And then there's a the third camp, the group that believes rates have peaked already. And they're ready to go back down. So I think you need a plan for each camp, which is why tonight we're taking more of an empirical approach here on Mad Money. We're going off the charts with Bob Marino. And Bob is a brilliant technician who happens to be my colleague at RealMoney.com, the paid side of the street.com, as well as being the publisher of RightViewTrading.com. We want to get a sense of what could happen under these three very different scenarios so you know what the camp followers are thinking. So first, what if the recession eases are right and interest rates are ultimately headed lower because the economy is about to go into a rut? That's just what I'm so worried about. Check out this weekly chart which plots the yield on 20-year Treasury bonds against the performance of the S&P Consumer Staples ETF, the XLP. Now, if you zoom out, you can see that over the last 20 years, long-term Treasury yields have gone steadily lower. Okay, so you can see. This is the 20-year, that's the long-term Treasury yields. At the same time, the consumer stables have an almost perfect inverse, in other words, opposite inverse correlation when Treasury yields go lower. The soft goods stocks go higher. So soft goods, and there's the Treasuries, okay? Especially since the Great Recession got going, this has really been definitely, definitely, let's just say stark. This is why I'm always telling you that the consumer packaged goods plays are bond market equivalents. That's the term I use. Their high dividends mean that bonds are their competition. Some investors simply want a nice, steady yield with relatively low risk. They'd rather get that uh, that from bonds, right, because they don't have a lot of risk. And Treasuries, by the way, are risk-free. Uh, but for years now, bonds haven't paid out enough to be an attractive option. Remember, they don't have a capital appreciation stream, just the income stream. So the staples and Treasuries have always been in opposition. But Marino points out that this negative correlation really accelerated in 2011. When the yield on the 20-year dropped below 3 percent, suddenly the consumer staples stocks caught fire in a major way. Even though their growth tends to be anemic, the staples index has more than doubled in the last seven years because for most of that time, the bond market competition was practically non-existent. I've told you how this dynamic works before, but it's still kind of stunning to see it laid out in visual form like this, isn't it? I mean, to me, when I saw this, I said, we got to do this off the charts. This is really, really cool. Anyway, now, Moreno's concerned because earlier this year, the 20-year crossed back above the 3% line. And that's right here. You can see that, OK? And it's currently 3.29%. Sure enough, when that happened, the staples started getting slammed. Although in the past few days, they've rebounded somewhat. If you think rates are headed still higher, Moreno's chart work should leave you in no doubt that the consumer staples are going to get poleaxed. But what if the recession are right about a Fed-mandated economic slowdown, which pushes long-term rates right back down? Marino says that if long-term rates go back below 3%, then the consumer staples and the utilities, all the slow and steady bond market alternative stocks, can go higher again. And when it comes to the staples, Marino thinks you should take a look at the daily chart of a stock that I'm not going to recommend because it's a tobacco stock, but let's him do the talking here. The daily chart of Philip Morris International the global tobacco company that sells Marlboros, and host of other brands overseas, okay? And this is PM. see what we're looking at here. Uh, Philip Morris supports a bountiful 5.4% five, 5. yield. So it's exactly the kind of bond market alternative stock we're talking about here. Marino points out that the stock has been stuck between 74 and 76 for the past few months. And you can see that. Look at this. It's kind of in a range, right? Philip Morris, though, has been forming, the stock's been forming, a, it forming an inverse head and shoulders formation. It's like an upside down person, right? And this is one of the most reliably bullish patterns in the chart book. Well, then there's the moving average convergence divergence. That's the oscillator up top, okay? Uh, it also, it's also known as the MACD. It's a powerful momentum indicator that helps technicians detect changes in the stock's trajectory. Most importantly, before they happen. If it's coincident, what good would that do, right? Mariner notes that it just made a bullish crossover. Boom! You see this? A bullish crossover last month, and it's been roaring higher. Another positive development. Plus, you know, we talk to Mark Chakin a lot. There's the Chakin money flow, which measures the level of buying and selling pressure. It went very positive in August. Okay, you can see this, right? Uh, and, and stayed that way for a while. In short, Marino thinks there's a lot of buying interest in Philip Morris International. So we see this, we add this, and we do this, and we get a positive story. Now, back in April, the stock gapped down from 96 to 90. Okay, you can see this. It's currently trading at just under 85 right here. If long term interest rates start going lower, Marino believes Philip Morris could rebound back to 90. And then quickly fill in this gap that would be filling in the gap that would take it up to here and and perhaps even higher. But remember, that's a mighty big if. By the way, the same goes for most of the other bond market equivalents, from the consumer packaged goods stocks to the utilities. These stocks will catch fire if the economy slows and and bond yields go back down. That's what I was so afraid of today when I saw stocks like McDonald's going higher. Those are not the right kinds of stocks if you think there's going to be an economic expansion. But what if the inflation are right and long-term rates keep rising. Well, then the banks are one of the few groups that wins, because when longer-term rates go higher, the financials can charge you more for loans, something they really need to do with the Fed boosting short-term rates, which those are to determine what the bank pays you for your deposits. So check out the daily chart of Citigroup, letter C. Marina points out that Citi's been making higher highs and higher lows since June. Okay, so you see this pattern? with the action forming a rising channel. At the same time, City's short-term 50-day moving average, just, and that is the red, just crossed above its long-term 200-day moving average, the blue, and this is like the holy grail of technical analysis. They call it the golden cross, and it's typically a sign that a stock is definitely headed higher. Still, Citi met some resistance, and the stock's currently cooling its heels in the low 70s. So you see how it got up here, and now it's kind of marking time right there. But if long-term rates keep climbing, Marina believes that resistance will be broken and this stock will roar. His only real uh, concern, what's well, the accumulation distribution line down here, which tells you whether big institutions are buying or selling. And it has failed to keep pace with the move actually going lower as city stock rallied. However, Marino thinks that that, change, that will change if rates continue to go higher I don't have that level of conviction, frankly. Finally, what about the moderation scenario? What if long-term rates simply stabilize here? If that's the case, Marino argues that the homebuilders, wow, talk about a down-and-out group, the home builders could finally make a comeback. These stocks have been stinking up the joint. The group's down roughly 20% for the year because everyone knows that housing gets crushed when mortgage rates become too expensive. You even had Lenard talking about a pause in the housing market last week. Denver, once the hottest market in the country, is freezing over. But if rates stabilize, Marino thinks that Wall Street may actually be willing to circle back to the homeowners because it means their worst fears may not materialize. In that case, which one does he like? Well, he takes and looks at the weekly chart of D.R. Horton which has been one of the better performers in a lousy group. He points out that the stock is right above its floor of support. This is amazing because I couldn't find a single good thing about this. Uh, and it's a floor that was successfully retested last week. And if rates stabilized, he could see Horton rallying back to its ceiling of resistance at 46. Now, here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by Bob Marino, suggest that you want to buy the soft goods stocks like Philip Morris if bond yields go lower. And you want to buy the banks like Citi if they go higher. And you might even consider owning a home builder if they simply stabilize right here. Remember, we own Citi from my charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the Plus.com club. And the big bank reports on Friday morning. Mad Money's back after the break. It is time! the And then the light round is over. Are you ready? Let's get it done for the night round! could run my way! Let's start with Kim and Arizona Kim! Hi, Jim. It's Kim from Arizona. I was just calling to see what your thoughts are on Express Script. That's on merging. Radio. That Express Script's merging with Signal. If you remember, Signal literally 30 points ago came on the show and just explained that, and I said, bah, bah, bah. well, it's the, oh, come on. Let's go to Carmen in Connecticut. Carmen. Hey, Jim. How are you? I'm good. How about you, Carmen? Good. Thank you so much for taking my call. Of Here's course. my question. Our grandson is graduating high school in June. We were thinking, my okay. husband and I were thinking of starting a stock portfolio. All for right. It our gift to him. I had Lockheed Martin in mind. I was kind of going in the area of defense. Want to I know like what defense, think of- but I don't want you to do Lockheed Martin. I want you to do Raytheon because Lockheed Martin has already moved to Raytheon's lag. Let's go to Chris in Minnesota. Chris! How's it going, sir, from the land of 10,000 leagues? Oh, there you go. What's going on? Uh, nothing. I got a high uh, margin, high growth stock called Amorous, AMRS. AMRS. I don't know it. I don't know it. I'm gonna to have to come back. It is a small cap company that I'm not sure about. Uh, let's take one more. Let's take one more. Let's go to Michael in Florida. Michael! Jimbo! Big Booya from Naples, Florida. Good place. What's up? Hey Jim, I'm calling about Abiomed, A uh, sticker symbol AB. You know, we have loved those guys since the beginning of the show, and I have to tell you, I still think that the device business is an M intuitive surgical. I'll throw that one too. We are good. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. We need to talk about PPG. This specialty chemical company, a huge maker of paints and coatings, really bushwhacked us last night. Which is why the stock ultimately plunged 10% today in regular trading. As I told you earlier, PPG is important. First, there's the obvious thing. The company put out a note yesterday morning that talked about escalating costs for materials, freight, and labor. Not so hot, I know. But then it released the whole thing under a simple headline of its own devising, quote, PPG announces global price increase for automotive OEM coatings, end quote. That headline, the company press release never talked about demand, except in the following phrase, quote, This price increase is vital to sustaining our history of innovating these next generation solutions and enhancing our ability to continue to meet demand. The implication of that statement seemed very clear to me. The company could put through all the price increases it needs because the demand for its product is strong. The stock rallied nicely on the news. Obviously, others felt the same way I did. But boy, was that ever wrong. After the close, PPG told us what I think is a different story. Company issued a full-blown negative pre-announcement. Management says they'll earn a buck forty-one to a buck forty-five. Wall Street was looking for a buck fifty-nine. Ouch! And then for the next quarter, they're forecasting just dollar three to dollar thirteen, well below the dollar thirty-two number the analysts were expecting. The culprit? PPG told us that, and I quote. We saw overall demand in China soften, and we are experiencing weaker automotive refinish levels as several of our U.S. and European customers are carrying high inventory levels due to lower end-use demand, end quote. Oh, man, that's brutal. Remember, just that morning, these guys had been talking about the need to continue to meet demand. What the heck happened between 8.08 a.m. when it put out that first release about the price increase and 4.49 p.m. when it pre-announced that nasty downside view? Honestly, it's amazing that until last night, PPG hadn't hurt, been hurt as badly as a lot of the other auto suppliers. But what's even more stunning is just how wrong this company was about what lay ahead. I know it's been nearly three months since PPG gave us some insight into the future on its last conference call, and in Wall Street terms, that's a lifetime ago. Still, though, That call management expressed a lot of optimism about the auto industry. Here's what CEO Michael McGarry had to say. Surprisingly, the OEM automotive had a good first half of the year, slightly better than expectations. And we see no reason why the second half won't continue. The only negative there, of course, is whether or not people were trying to buy ahead of the tariffs. So we won't know that just yet, end quote. Could they have been buying ahead, and McGarry simply didn't know? Was his crystal ball that bad? After the change in tone between yesterday's press release and pre-announcement, nothing would surprise me about these guys. One thing's for certain. Any company with any exposure to the auto industry, or the price of oil for that matter, not to mention the strong dollar and the rising cost of transportation, will now be considered to be something that should be held for sale, unless proven innocent. That's what these numbers from PPG mean. It turned whole swaths of this market toxic from the get-go today. The industrial stock weakness can be traced right back to PPG. The saving grace? The company didn't blame housing or aerospace, two other important businesses, although the former was already dinged when Lowe's dropped PPG's Olympic brand paints and stains just last February. That was terrible. This week, this seems to be about the autos. It's also terrible. But alas, that's the really only saving grace I can think of, that it was about the orders, especially as the tariff situation with China has only gotten worse, and Europe slowed even more since the quarter ended. In other words, if you think these numbers are bad, just you wait, because it can get worse. And I bet a whole host of industrials turned out to be a lot more like PPG than we'd want, which is why I'm so worried about what the Fed is doing. Oh, and yes, after the close, we found out that Nelson Peltz uh, took a $690 million stake in PPG. That's his try business. And that's a $23 billion company, so let's not think that much is going to change. But I don't know what will happen here with Peltz and with PPG. The company says it looks forward to maintaining a healthy dialogue. Me? I just wish it's business. We're healthier. Stick with Kramer. Okay, I hope it rallies, but hope it shouldn't be part of the investing equation. I just want the Fed to not be lockstep. Come on, guys. Give us a break. The economy is not that strong to be able to handle all those rate hikes. Hey, what can I say? It's true. Like I said, there's always a more market summer. I promise you're to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. 1980s New York. Five titans redefined the American dream. Helmsley, Boski, Gotti, Trump, Giuliani. Greed was good, and they wanted it all. Empires of New York, narrated by Paul Giamatti. <laughs> Series premiere November 29th at 8 Eastern. Only on CNBC TV.